Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are deep into our ongoing major study of the book of Daniel, and class teacher Doug Brady began a short byway study of the rapture as it is part of Daniel. Last week he began this story, and we continue it today. Doug has titled this lesson, Escaping the Horn, Part 2. We have been laying the groundwork for a study of the coming of the Lord for His church, and in particular, when that might occur. And we should come close to finishing that foundation in this lesson. Be assured that we will return to Daniel chapter 8 as soon as this byway study is completed. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We enjoy coffee and donuts just before class at 9 o'clock and are ready to begin at exactly 9.15. Over 100 people attend this class every week because of the deep teaching of scriptures by our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We would welcome you should you be in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Will we escape the little horn? Will we have to deal with the little horn. Who is the little horn? Well, it's the Antichrist. Individually, we don't know who that is. Will we ever be able to confirm who that is? I hear silence. There's a few speaking out because what we want to do is we want to discover exactly what the rapture is, and then we want to find out when it's going to happen. Now, I don't want anybody to get excited that I'm going to tell you, well, yeah, it's uh, September 23rd. No, I'm not going to tell you that kind of when. But I'm going to tell you and prove to you when in relation to other events it will occur. And I may even put a wrinkle on it that you haven't considered yet. But we're starting out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. If you want to open your Bibles, do that, please. But we are going to open with a word of prayer and ask God to bless this study. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could meet together, that you have preserved for us and not let Satan destroy your word. I pray now and thank you that we live in a nation where we can all own a Bible, where we can freely gather to study it, at least here in Texas. And so, Father, I thank you for that. In fact, I thank you that we get to live in Texas. But now, Father, I pray that you will restore our nation, that you will bring a revival one final time before you come back, where we can sweep across the world with the love of your gospel and the promise of your forgiveness. 
But help us, Father, to understand what is going to end the age of the church, what is going to be the precursor for this horrible time called the day of the Lord. Pray these things in your Son's name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Now, we've been laying the groundwork for this conception of the rapture. Let me just see if anybody can remember. If I told you you could use any translation of the Bible that you wanted, could you choose one in which the word rapture would be in there? Yes. The Latin Vulgate. The word rapture is in there. It's uh, reparo in the noun form, uh, repari in the verb form, but it exists there. And that's the way Jerome translated it. And I wanted you to see that. Now, let's look at some charts here just to remind us of what's going on. I want you to see, these are the events. There's this Old Testament period, and then the Messiah's initial coming and his death on the cross. That brings in the age of the church. After the age of the church or the church age, the dispensation of grace, comes the tribulation. We'll be studying that in Daniel. You'll see it speaks of it in Daniel 9, 27. Let me ask you a question. How long is the tribulation period? Where in the Bible does it tell you that it's seven years? Anywhere else? No. Where else? Now, I'll tell you it's that the great tribulation is 42 months or time times half a time or 1,260 days. But it will not tell you that the tribulation period is seven years except in Daniel chapter 9. If you can find a place in the scripture that shows that, please tell me. Now, then comes the kingdom. Now, I want to point something out to you here. When Jesus first came here, right before the church age started, where did he say the kingdom fit in? This was moved up in place of the church age. Because if the Jewish people had accepted their Messiah, the kingdom would have been brought in. Do you know what gospel Jesus preached along with John the Baptist and the disciples at first? The gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. The Messiah is here. Accept him. But did they? No, they rejected him. In fact, John 12, I think it's verse 37, you will find the corporate rejection of the Messiah by Israel. Now, they preached here the gospel of the kingdom. Why did they preach the gospel of the kingdom? Because it was the next event. What gospel should we preach? The gospel of the rapture. That's the next event. It's imminent. It's the next event. The next thing God is going to do. He's going to end the church age by rapturing the saints. Now, we looked at Philippians 3, 20. Well, we also talked about the various things. Let's look at these real quick. Hopefully they're not as bad on the green. This is the rapture view comparison. You have the pre-tribulation position, which is the position I believe is biblical. And uh, the rapture occurs before the tribulation. There are some people that say, no, you have to go through one half of the tribulation first, then you will get raptured. Then there's another view. It's the post-tribulation view. It says, no, you have to go through the whole rapture. And then at the end, 
I want you to think about this just a second. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare some places for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, where is that located? Yeah, but where is the dwelling places located? Heaven. So, according to these people, we're going to spend seven years in this tribulation. We're going to go up. We're going to immediately come right back down, and we start the millennial kingdom. Where's that located? We ever going back to those places that Jesus, we ever going to live in those places Jesus made for us? No. You know, people say, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. No, you're not. You're going to spend seven years, whoa, seven years in heaven during the tribulation. Then you're going to be living here in the millennial kingdom, and then you're going to be living in the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven and going to be over the earth. You're not going to spend eternity in heaven, just seven years. Now, this final view is the pre-wrath view. What people want to say is, well, God's wrath doesn't start getting poured out until sometime during the tribulation, not from the very start. I'm going to show you that that view's wrong, but they end up saying it's really three-quarters, so I call them three-quarter rapturous. Uh, three-quarters of the way through is when most of them will say God's wrath starts. If you read Revelation, you'll find that view. Now, there's one crazy view that we haven't put up there, and that's the partial rapture theory. That is that God is going to take some of us who are worthy at the pre-tribulation time, but the rest of us uh, will be taken as we become worthy. Yes, ma'am. There's a new theory kind of emerging right now. and it's Kind of like an emergent church deal? No, but it's the seals to where we're here for the seals. Where we're here for the seals. I'm glad that you bring that up. Because when we get to Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to show you that that would be impossible unless you believe the church is going to go through some of the wrath of God. But we'll see it. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you see how sweetly that question or comment was made? Now, chapter 16 and through 18 of Acts is where it tells the story of Paul going to the city of Thessalonica. We're going to talk about that because we need to see a little background before we get into this book. And I think it's important. When Paul got into Thessalonica, he did what he would always do. He would go to the, to the synagogue and there he would preach Jesus as the Messiah. For three weeks, he spent time talking to the Jews, trying to persuade the Jews, arguing with the Jews in Thessalonica. And they rejected Rejected and rejected. Let me show you that these Jews there in Thessalonica are a perfect picture of the word. Number one, the world wants to say, we have a right to believe what we want to believe and practice what we want to do, and you don't have a right to interfere with us. And they get that accepted. Then the next thing these Jews are going to do, he's going to say, okay, fine. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. So what do they do? They start arguing against Paul with the Gentiles, trying to marginalize his message. And then when the power of God is being displayed and they're being kicked out, I mean, they're losing in every battle in Thessalonica and this big church is growing, they're saying, oh, we know how to solve this. We got to get rid of Paul. And so they persecute to the extent that he has pushed out of Thessalonica. And so 
He's been there about a year, year and a half with this church. And then he has to leave Thessalonica up here. He goes through Berea, comes down here through Athens and ends up in Corinth. And it is there in Corinth where he writes the first book, First Thessalonians. Now, there's a question as to which book in the New Testament chronologically First Thessalonians is. Most people believe that Galatians is the first book was written about 49 BC. Other people believe that what was the first book, Julie? I can't hear you. First Thessalonians. Uh, that very well may be. Some people think maybe Mark. But I want you to think about this. Let's say you're in the church in Thessalonica. You're a Christian. You got a, became a Christian right at the start. So you're a year and a half old as a believer. And you've developed this question that's really bothering you. What are you going to do? Can you look it up in the New Testament? <laughs> if Galatians was written first, well, it, it's over there in Galatia and Asia Minor. You probably don't have access to it. Do you think those Gentiles had access to the Old Testament scriptures? Well, you think the Jews in that city would share that with him? But even if they did, is there anything about the rapture in the Old Testament? No, because it's a mystery. What do you do? There's only one thing you, they knew to do. Find Paul and ask him. And so they had these questions and they sent a letter or a messenger, we don't know which, to Corinth. This is our problem, Paul. First Thessalonians is the answer to their questions. And they had some serious questions about this thing called the rapture. And basically their prime question was this. Now, Paul, you told us Jesus is coming back for us and he's going to come. We're going to be changed. We're going to be taken up and we're going to have hear the horn. We're going to hear the voice, all these things. But my friend just died. What about him? Is he going to be left behind now that he's dead? Or does he get raptured too somehow? What happens? Ah, that brings us that question to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we're going we're gonna to take the time today to unpack this passage completely. So in verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Let's ask ourselves this. We do not want you to be uninformed. What is this passage about? They want to know. Tell us, what does Paul say? I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, let me tell you what a bunch of churches do in our country today. They say, well, we're here to teach believers, and we want to build up the body, and we want to teach them things. Well, what about prophecy? Oh, not prophecy. No, we don't teach prophecy. Especially, it's so complex. It confused new believers. We don't want them to know. We'll talk about the Trinity. You know, that's a simple doctrine and salvation and other things like that, the scriptures, but we don't talk about prophecy. Did Paul follow that advice? Did he not in the first year and a half of these people's uh, spiritual life tell them about some of the most, and you will see next week, it's going to be even more serious than just the rapture. He's going to tell them about the tribulation and all of that and how it's going to happen. He's going to call it the day of the Lord. Why is he calling it the day of the Lord? Because it's not a mystery. It's spoken of throughout the whole Old Testament. And he's teaching them this. And what is he saying? 
What do we need to do? Should we listen to these church gurus now who say that, or should we listen to the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Scripture? We ought to be teaching prophecy, and we ought to teach it deep. Did Paul ever just go shallow on his teaching of the prophecy? Our church should be about teaching prophecy and teaching it deeply, teaching it, unpacking it so that we can learn. Let me tell you, the study of prophecy in the Scripture is like a giant sea chest that we find, and there's so many wondrous things in it, we want to go so slowly to make sure we get everything out of everything that's been packed in there. That's one of the reasons we're going to take and unpack this. Now, those who are asleep, we know that asleep means death. We've studied that already in, in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians. But we, we see this passage that... They don't remember what they were taught. He wants to set the record straight with them, and he wants them to know what will happen to the believers who have died. But now he makes a division in the last part of this verse. I want you to see a division. It's an important division. It's an important division because of what we're to be about. Jerry, let's hit the next slide, please. You will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. What's the division? He divides the world into two groups. What are those two groups? No hope and the hope. Now, if you look at that, that is really kind of chilling. Imagine no hope. Said another way, hopelessness. How would you like to live in hopelessness? Many of you did for a long period of time. Now, I spent my first five years in hopelessness, but it didn't seem to really bother me as best I can recollect. After that, I wasn't living in hopelessness anymore, but, and God blessed me in that regard, but some of you maybe lived 20 years in that situation. So we don't want to be without hope, and that is important. And in fact, you need to understand when Paul was writing to Titus, he used an adjective to describe that hope. Does anybody remember what that adjective is? Blessed. If you were to read in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, you'll see that phrase uh, where he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The blessed hope is that he's coming back to retrieve us. He's coming back to rescue us and take us out of this world. As things are going on in our society now, do we see a need for rescue? Now, I want you to think about this just a second. As I look and as I study, America is the most ethical, moral, and law-controlled society in the world. Now, you would say, that's not saying much. Well, true. My point is, look how worse it is everywhere else if we are the best. It's horrible. People are dying. You live in a Muslim country. You think there's any freedom at all for a Christian in Afghanistan right now? None. None. They're going to be beheaded. And a government that negotiates... We're not talking about government. We're talking about 1 Thessalonians. Look in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
Now, I want you to see something here because this is very important to understand how Paul is, what Paul is doing with the rapture concept. Do we have a, a verse on that? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what is he tying the certainty of the rapture to? The resurrection of Jesus. What happens to you if there's no resurrection? You're going to hell. Or God doesn't exist and you've just lived your life as a waste. So what is happening here? This is serious to Paul. As sure as Jesus rose from the dead, you will be raptured. These Cretans who come in, no, not Cretans, miscreants, who come in and they teach there is no rapture, if they claim to be God's men or women and they're doing that, they have hell to pay. That's just the way it is. And so I want you to see that, how Paul confirms the basis of our hope is, is proven through Jesus' resurrection and the power of God that raised up and brought the Son of Man back out of the grave and back up to heaven is the same power that's going to rapture us. Now, look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are who alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. You know, my mother used to say to me, till I studied the rapture greatly, she said, I want to be raptured. I don't want to die first and then I don't get raptured. I said, Mom, you're going to be raptured. If you're dead, you're going to get raptured before me. She is now. She's going to precede me. Well, assuming I'm alive. If I'm dead, then we'll both go at the same time. Right. Yes. Can I ask a question? I often wonder about soul sleeping based on some of these verses versus when you die, you immediately go. All right. Now, that's a very good question. When God created man, and she's talking about soul sleep, how many, there is no such thing as soul sleep. How many parts does a man have? Three. And you find that at the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians. He has the, the body the soul, and the spirit. The body is his means of communicating in the physical world. The spirit is his means of communicating in the spiritual world. Now, most of you don't realize, you have spiritual eyes. You have spiritual ears. You say, what do you, I've never experienced. Well, do you remember when Elijah said to Ahab on Mount Carmel, you better eat your lunch and get going because I hear the sound of a mighty rainstorm. And he looked up and it's just completely blank blue sky. He heard that not with his physical ears, but with his ears of faith. Let me tell you, do you remember when Elisha came out and his servant said, we're surrounded by Assyrians, by, I'm pardon me, Syrians. What are we going to do? These Arameans are going to kill us all. And you remember what Elisha said? Lord, open his eyes. And then the Lord answered that prayer. He did. And he saw it wasn't the, them who were surrounded by Assyrians. It was the Assyrians who were surrounded by the angelic forces. And they did what Elisha told them to do. And so when we die, our body sleeps. Our soul and our spirit are immediately in the presence of the Lord God. So there's no soul sleeping. Now... As you look at this, I want you to focus on this passage first. By the word of the Lord, 
He's telling us, what I'm, for this I say to you, by the word of the Lord. What does that mean, by the word of the Lord? It means the Lord told him. That's exactly what it means. But wait, how could that be? Paul wasn't a disciple uh, during the three years, or three and a half years, or four years that Jesus was here on the earth. I mean, in his public ministry. He wasn't called along with John and Andrew and Peter and those, Nathaniel, Philip, to walk with him. He didn't see Jesus crucified, as far as we know. He didn't have anything to do with Jesus. If he would have during his public ministry, what would he have wanted to do? Stone him. How in the world does he know Does God told him? Did God tell him on the road to Damascus? No, he records that conversation. He didn't say anything about the rapture on the road to Damascus. Ah, uh, that brings us to maybe the first book in the New Testament, if not the second. And that's Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Understand what's going on here in Paul's life. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Now, what is he saying? I didn't get it from a man. For I neither received it from a man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Where? When? For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen for being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. What is in Arabia? A desert, but there's Midi, the land of Midian was in Arabia, and what was in the land of Midian? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. When God wanted to deal with Israel, and Moses in particular, where did he take them? Mount Horeb. When he wanted to deal with Elijah, because he was ready to quit, where did he take him? Mount Horeb. When he wanted to create the greatest apostle that has ever spent on this earth, where did he take him? Mount Horeb. Uh, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem, become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. And then he went on to say what he was doing. That is the first time he spent three years in the presence of Jesus on Mount Horeb. Now, some people say, you know, Doug, there's nothing to eat or even drink on Mount Horeb. How is he going to survive for three years? You can't survive in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he have access to to whatever food or water you need? Of course he does. Who knows? It may be the rock started bubbling up again. But whatever the case, was that the only time that he spent time in the actual presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? Ah, uh, no. Look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Now, Paul's being 
a little crafty here, and he's not saying it's me, but it is him. And you'll see the way he says it. He's talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, but God knows such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, but God knows, was caught up into paradise. And he heard inexpressible words, which a man may not be permitted to speak. Well, how would he know what those words were? Because he was the one hearing them. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but not on behalf of myself I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. So I want you to see, he'd gotten caught up into the third heaven, just like Isaiah the prophet, had done in Isaiah chapter 6. Now he's speaking the word of the Lord. He says, the word of the Lord is this, and that's what he's doing. Now, let's look at one other part of this verse before we leave. I want you to see. The coming. Those who, remain, who are alive remain until the coming. What does that mean? Well, that's a simple word, Doug. Nah, not so simple. Parousia. Parousia means presence. It comes from the one, the, the, it's from a, it comes from a present participle verb, periamai, which means to be present or to have come. What it's saying is it will, he will bring his presence. There's something unique about the presence of God. And that will be, we will be encased in that presence in the clouds when we meet him there. Can you imagine just being completely enveloped along with all the other members of the church in the presence of God? It's going to be awesome. We're going to be looking around at our new uh, bodies that we're going to have received. And it's just going to be amazing. Now, look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now I want you to say to them, there, people who are against the rapture and trying to say, oh, that's bogus. I don't know why you're thinking that. There's only two comings, the first coming and the second coming. There is no rapture. These passages that you think talk about the rapture, they're really talking about the second coming. no. But they say, oh, so you believe in a secret rapture. If they say that word, a secret, then that's, you know which side they're on. And it's not the biblical side. But you read this passage, there's going to be shouting. The first shout, you, if you understand the grammar, is Jesus' shout. Then there's also a shout of an archangel. Now, do you think, do, do you remember in the Old Testament not in the New Testament, in the Gospels, anytime where it says Jesus shouted. I don't remember ever hearing a shout. When Jesus shouts, do you think there's anybody who can't hear it? In fact, can't even the dead hear it? Ah, you're beginning to see where I'm going. But there's a shouting. Now, when an archangel shouts, do you think you're going to hear that? When a trumpet blows, I don't think just the church hears it. I think the world hears it. Now, they're going to try and explain to you something as to, to the, those of you, if there's anybody here that gets left behind, uh, they're going to try and explain to you what happened, and all those explanations will be bogus. But, you know, we're so used to hearing bogus stuff, uh, the rest of the world's going to buy it. I'm convinced. Uh, and we hear bogus stuff all the time. 
But he's going to descend. Now, some people want to say, well, really, it's the angels who came, not Jesus. Is he going to send an angel to pick up his bride? No. I would never send an angel to pick up my bride. I wouldn't trust him with her. But I'm going to... I'm going, to get, I'm going to get her myself. Now, he's coming for his bride. He descends from heaven with a shout. This word descend, I think, is important for us to see. It's catabiano. And catabiano is talking of a celestial being coming down to earth. That's what that Greek word means. And so it's not an angel. It's, it's Jesus. Now, he descends from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. I want you to see this because some people want to say it's with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. That's really the same thing. No, no, no. We, we've got a serious... There's not an and there, they say. They not only don't understand Greek English, they don't understand English grammar. I mean, Greek grammar. They don't understand it. This is a series with a shout, with a voice, and with a trumpet. You see that conjunction there at the end? When you have three or more things, you don't put the and in front of everything. You just put it before the last one. And so these are three things, with a shout, and the grammar indicates that it's the Lord who's making the shout, the one who's descending, with the voice of the archangel, and then with the trumpet of God. We've talked about the trumpet of God. We're going to talk more about that as we go along. Uh, as, as, as we get there, uh, we talked about it last time, but I want you to see this is not a secret rapture. There's a great about a noise. I want you to see, do we know who blows the trumpet of God? No, we don't. But in the Revelation, we have consistently the angels blowing these trumpets, and it very well may be. And they fly in the sky and blow, and the whole world hears. And that's why I believe the whole world's going to hear this time. Now, there's this little pronoun there that's used three times, with. It's this Greek pronoun, in. And in basically can have three different meanings. We're going to look at this real carefully for just a second. In, by, or with. And here, let's talk about what it's used in, in grammatically. The grammar here, it's a preposition and it's dative. Now, some of you say, I don't know what in the world that means, dative. Well, you can take a noun or the preposition that goes with the noun, and you can put it in five different things, nominative, genitive, accusative, dative, and ablative. Now, some of you studied Latin, you know that. If you studied Greek, you may know that. But each of those has a different purpose and a meaning. So you see, this language is much more scientific. Do we decline nouns? No, not in English. We don't. So... We have to look how it's used in the sentence and what it's saying. You look at the word in the Greek, and it tells you exactly where it is in the sentence. Now, this possibility here with this is a dative. It can be a dative of place, dative of time, or dative of cause. Here, you can tell that it's clearly a dative of cause. Now, when you have a dative of cause, there's three more possibilities here, expressing a means or an instrument, uh, expressing a kind or a manner, or expressing a cause or a reason. Here, it's an instrument and a manner with a shout, 
but it's an instrument of the trumpet, and it's an instrument of the shout of Jesus. What do I mean by that? This word shout here in the Greek, kalisoma, means a specifically a stimulating cry, a stimulating cry. What we're going to have here is a situation just like we had in John chapter 11, verse 43. Jesus is standing before a grave, and you remember what he says? Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? He came forth alive, more alive maybe than he'd ever been. Now, I have to admit to you that when I was... I can remember being taught this story a number of times, and the first one who taught it to me several times was my mother, and she would always ask me this question, Douglas, what would have happened if he had just said, come forth? <laughs> Everyone's coming. But he didn't. He said Lazarus. So only Lazarus came forth. And I want you to see, that's what's going to happen. He's going to say just like that, and everybody who's in the church who's died is going to come forth. And they're going to meet him in the clouds, be changed instantly. That's what this shout is all about. It's a cry of authority and instruction. So now we come to the main verse. <laughs> what do you mean? It's already 10 o'clock. Yes, well, now we're getting to the main verse, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I want us to look clearly and distinctly at this word, will be caught up. This is the word we've talked about. It's harpazo, and harpazo was what was translated by Jerome as rapturo in the Latin. It means to be caught up. It means to be seized. It means to be carried off. Now, let's look at the grammar just a second. It's second future, passive voice, indicative mood. Let's, let's talk about that just a second. Future in time. It's not happened yet. It's going to happen. That's future. It's pretty simple. Passive. Well, that means that the subject matter is not the one doing the action. The action is being performed on the subject. Here, we are the subject of this verb caught up. We're the ones being caught up, but we are not doing the action Jesus is. Finally, it's indicative. Indicative mood is a simple statement of fact, one you can rely on. In effect, do you remember Jesus said, let your yea be nay, yea, and your nay be nay? He says, you don't need to make all these promises and stuff. You don't have to be swearing all this stuff. You, what you say, you ought to stand by. You say yes, be yes. When you say no, it ought to be no. This concept of being caught up, harpazo, is this the only place it's used in the Scripture? Because, you know, then we don't know for certain what it means. If we could see an example from somewhere else in the Scripture where this concept of God just taking somebody, grabbing him, and taking him somewhere else, whether it's to heaven or wherever, well, let's look a second. Now, was Jesus harpazoed when he ascended into heaven? No, he ascended. And they could see him going up. Are, are the people going to see us? You know, we see pictures of the rapture and all these people going up. Are they going to be able to see us? Don't know. No, they're not going to be able to see us. How, how do we know that? Twinkling of an eye. We'd just be gone. There you go. 
It will, and in fact, I'm convinced that the word that speaks of the rapture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 means disappearance. Disappearance. But we'll get to that. That's a little ways off. But look in Matthew chapter 13 verse 9. When anyone hears the words, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one come and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Snatches away is harpazio. Taken forcibly and removed. That's the first example in the scripture. There's some other places where it's used. I have them down there for you. But let's look at Acts chapter 8, 39. Do you remember the story of Philip when he was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch? And when he'd come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went his way rejoicing. That's Harbazio. Snatched away. Raptured. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, remember we talked about Paul being taken up into the third heaven? It uses that word. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. That's Harpazio. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. It's interesting here that some people say that I'm wrong. That when Jesus went up uh, into, ascended into heaven, that he was in fact harpazioed. Because in Revelation 12, 5, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, that's the concept here, that's every time it's used, it's a, a forcible seizure, that somebody can't, you will not be able to say, I'm sorry, I'm resisting. There'll be no resistance. You're just going to be taken. You had your choice whether you decide whether or not you were going to receive Christ as your Savior. And you made the choice. You now are his bride, and he's coming for you, and he's going to take you. Now, look at this final phrase in this passage I want you to see. It has to do with uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that sounds to me when I first read it a little redundant. Isn't it saying the same thing? In the clouds, in the air. Same thing, right? Why would he do that? Because he wants to make it perfectly clear that Jesus is not coming to the earth. He won't do that until the end of the tribulation when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, according to, to Zechariah. He's not in the same way when the groom came to get his bride in the Jewish marital system, he would not go into her home. He would stand outside and call for her. And she would come out to him. Didn't go in the home. He would never go in the home. Because, see, he's not under the control of those parents anymore. He's only under the control of his father. His father who told him when to come and went to get her. And he's taken her back to his house. And that's the picture in the Jewish marital system, and that's what's going on here. And so I want you to see. Now, so we shall always be with the Lord. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, I didn't put that in blue, but I wanted to mention something about that. Does it say we'll always be in heaven? No. It'll always be with Jesus. But you think about it. Don't we want to be, I mean, Steve, what would you think about if at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, Jesus said to you, I tell you what, Steve, you can go back to that place I prepared for you in heaven. The rest of us, we're going to the new Jerusalem. You're not taking that deal? No, no I wouldn't either. 
I want to be wherever Jesus is. And that's where we're going to get to be. We're going to get to be with Jesus. Now, let's look at this last. We're going to come to verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I want you to see something here because this is very important. This is not just a nice thing that Paul is saying to encourage you. No, this has a very important impact. This promise of rescue is from the wrath of God that is reassuring to us. You will not have to go through the wrath. I am going to rescue you from that. How do you know that? It, 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 the fact that he's coming back for us, isn't that comfort enough? Maybe we have to go through some of his wrath. Well, what did he tell the Thessalonians? And how many times did he tell them? Well, let's start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Well, what are you waiting for him for? Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us. What does he rescue us from? From the wrath to come. It's not yet, but it's coming. It's coming even more now than it was in the time of the Thessalonians. Now, this word rescue, reomai, it means to draw to oneself, to rescue, to deliver. He's delivering us from the wrath that he's to come. I mean, what? I want you to just think about the inanity of this. What if I was to say to, G, to Julie when I asked her to marry me, there's one thing you need to understand. Before, the week before we get married, I'm going to beat the holy living devil out of you. Does that indicate that you love your bride? No. no. He's not going to do that. He's not going to pour his wrath out on us. We're his bride. I don't want anything bad to happen to Julie, especially right before I marry her. My goodness. And yet these people say that. Well, is this the only passage that you're defend, depending on to say? Well, what do you think it's called the blessed hope for? Because we're not going to have to go through the wrath. How blessed are we that we don't have to? That would be terrible. But it, he starts 1 Thessalonians with this promise, right? Now he's going to end 1 Thessalonians with the same thing. Look in chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Now you've seen it. Comfort one another, encourage one another. Dawn, how comforting would you feel if I told you, well, now listen, Dawn, Jesus is coming back for you, but you're going to have to spend seven years in hell first. You wouldn't like that, would you? Would you feel comforted? Well, Jessica, would you feel comforted if I told you, well, Jesus is coming back for you, Jessica, but you're going to have to spend just half of the tribulation, three and a half years in hell. No, thank you. Well, Julie, what if I told you that uh, you just have to spend uh, the first three quarters of the, of the tribulation in hell, uh, and then we're coming back for you? Would you feel comforted? You wouldn't? 
I didn't think so. But you still want to think that the seal judgments... No, but, but I think the distinction is these people are going through terrible persecution of man. They are right now. That's why he had to explain to them, this is not my wrath. My wrath is coming, and I'm going to describe it. And eventually he does for all these people in around A.D. 90, uh, 95 when uh, John writes the Revelation. Now, I can tell you, I spent a year teaching the Revelation, and I was depressed because... Horrible, horrible. When you get to the Greek and you look at what's the terrible things that are going to happen, people just want to die and they can't die. The things that are going to happen are just horrible. And so I wanted you to see that. We don't have to go through that. We have hope. And I'm going to keep showing you passage after passage after passage, that hope that we have. He's coming for us before the tribulation starts. How far before? That's something we will talk about after a while. But let's close in a word of prayer today. Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise you've given us. The warning of what's coming that you've given to us. And now the promise that you will rescue us. Father, I pray that it will be soon. But Father, help us to know what we're to be about before you come. We have the hope, but how many people around us have no hope? Use us to change that in their lives. Help us to be willing to speak a word of encouragement, to come to understand how to best share our faith with them, to do it in a loving way, allowing your Holy Spirit to woo their heart and to bring it to you. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved to you so that we know how to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.